You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. So I'm Giles Parkinson. David, thanks for joining us um, this week as usual. Yes, Giles. Hi. Look, we've got a lot to talk about as usual um, on both sides of the meter, as it were, and in all sorts of parts of the electricity grid. Um, We've got um, interesting uh, PPAs for wind and solar. We've got some interesting news on the networks. We've got some interesting news on battery storage and from South Australia, which seems to be our, our little test pad for Australia and the rest of the world. Let's get going with the PPAs. I'm going to start off with the Origin PPA announced for Stockyard Hill. Um, It's going to be the biggest wind farm in Australia, 530 megawatts. It was always expected that Origin would sell this and try to contract it for the lease price. We know there was a whole bunch of people bidding for it. A lot of Chinese manufacturers, a lot of other people, all sorts of stories about different combinations being put together. In the end, it came in at 5.5 cents a kilowatt hour, which I think stunned the industry. Well, sorry, officially it was less than six cents a kilowatt hour, but we understand that it was closer to five than six, but not by much. So we're we're saying 5.5 cents a kilowatt hour, $55 a megawatt hour. Just to put that into context, it's about 15% below the previous record low that we've had. And it's about half the price of the current electricity price in Victoria. David, were you surprised by this? What's the significance of it all? Well, I suppose if we look at the significance, I, the significance is probably more around quantity than price. It is a large wind farm at over 500 megawatts. And by my count, that brings the total of new wind farms under development, if we include the Horncastle 1 and 2, which started operating this year, to about 2.5 gigawatts, 2,500 megawatts. And that'll probably produce about 7.5 terawatt hours. Uh, which compares with Hazelwood's 10 terawatt hours. So the new wind all by itself will replace 75% of Hazelwood in terms of the total amount of energy produced. And of course, we've got a lot of solar coming as well. And uh, about 1.9 gigawatts of new PV solar, and we expect to see more on that. And 1.2 gigawatts, you know, is a reasonable conservative even estimate of the rooftop solar. So it all adds up to about 5,600 megawatts of new renewables under development in Australia. Um, you know, considering the difficulty there still is around federal policy, it just shows that in the very end, price beats policy. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it is quite crucial. But tell me about $55 a megawatt hour with Origin. I mean, it's going to be... Look, Goldwyn's going to... um, Goldwyn's going to build this, and I presume it wants the contract because it's a um, it's a manufacturing contract for itself, and it can um, provide its own turbines, of course. Uh, the interesting thing, I guess, is that Goldwyn thinks that they can build it and make a satisfactory return at fifty-five dollars a megawatt hour, which I think is pretty interesting. It kind of underlies that whole idea that the cost of renewables is going down and is vastly cheaper than anything you could build in fossil fuels. The second part of that equation is that Origin is going to make an awful lot of money in the short term, at least, because if you add in the black price, the wholesale price of electricity and the price of LGCs, it's probably three times greater, at least, than the um, the contract price. Not to mention the 80 to $90 million that, in fact, uh, Goldwind was willing to pay Origin for, just for the privilege of undertaking this deal. It, yes. It's difficult to work out the exact arithmetic. I believe the capacity factor is around... 45%, but that's based on unofficial views. So that's that's pretty strong. Uh, secondly, I don't think you can underestimate 
um, the role that Goldwind, the wind farm or turbine owner, has in, in sort of choosing where to take the profits. They might um, choose not to make too much money on this contract and they can certainly install the turbines and, and do the um, maintenance for them. You know, maintenance on a wind farm runs on average to an incredible $20 a megawatt hour. I mean, that's more than the cost of coal. Uh, that's surprising. That's what the Australian average has been for quite a long time. And, and Goldwind can probably cut corners on that in the sense that they can do it and shift the profit somewhere else. So all of those sort of things, I think, would explain part of the reason why the price is so low. The second thing, Giles, I do want to mention is, yes, it's less than the price of renewable electricity. It's less than the price at which you could build a new coal or gas-fired plant. But that is not the whole price that the, the consumer has to pay uh, for renew, uh, intermittent generation. There still has to be this levelised cost of balancing, as uh, as was expressed by, by Blakers. We still have to have in the longer run some additional costs to, to make that electricity deliverable so we can run an aluminium smelter or more likely a, um, a, a data centre um, server farm. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And my understanding, we're going to be hearing something about that um, very soon in Australia. Um, the Blacklist thing was quite interesting, though, because it did point out wind and solar being at around $50 a megawatt hour, which wind is now obviously getting quite close to. Uh, and it said uh, he suggested that the um, that added balancing cost was about $25 a megawatt hour. So the all-in cost was $75 a megawatt hour. And I think that underlines the point that's been made by AGL and others that really um, the cost of renewables and storage is probably cheaper than a new gas plant and certainly cheaper than a new coal plant. Um, and Giles, I have forward. to jump in and say it's quite a bit less than the price. Our, our dear friend Danny Price assumed uh, in, in his emissions intensity scheme um, calculations. Absolutely. And we'll have to get on to the emissions intensity scheme one day, but today's probably not the day for it. Look, I'm just going to mention two other PPAs because I did find them quite cheerful, um, only in the sense that um, there was one, the 30 megawatt Byford solar plant in Western Australia, which was uh, ordered by West Farmers subsidiary Clean Heat. Uh, it's an electricity retailer, so it has some obligations to build some renewables. So it's um, that's going to be the largest one in Western Australia. Another one's the 42.5 um, megawatt uh, plant in Collinsville in North Queensland, which is being built by Ratch and which got some financing from the CFC this week. The interesting thing about those two plants is that Byford is actually being built on land that had been reserved for an HVDC um, tower to transport coal-fired power or new coal-fired power from Collie into Perth. Now that's not going to happen anymore. They don't need the tower, they don't need the land, so they're going to build a solar farm there instead. And Collinsville, of course, is going on the side of the old Collinsville power station and is one of a number of power stations around Collinsville are uh, quite interesting. A, um, a coal mining town turning solar very quickly in a very big way. The Collinsville, I visited the Collinsville power station. Uh, it it's, wasn't the world's uh, best or most modern coal-fired power station. And occasionally the coal would get flooded and get wet. But certainly having those transmission links um, in Queensland uh, makes them fantastic places to put solar farms around. Yeah, look, I think there's actually about four or five different um, solar plants being built north, south, west and Collinsville. So it's obviously, um, it's obviously a great attraction. Look, the, um, let's move along. Let's move on to networks. Uh, the Endeavour network was sold this week, uh, last, uh, this week by the New South Wales government. Look, David, you're probably ahead of me on the details of this, but what I did notice was that the, re, um, the RAB, which is the return on asset value, whatever it is, uh, was quite high, um, so much so that it pointed, uh, um, it uh, sparked um, 
uh, long-term renewable, uh, sorry, network critic Hugh Grant to wonder why it was that the, the uh, federal government was pinging the banks um, for extra taxes to meet the budget shortfall and, and not the networks because he pointed out that they probably make 10 times the return on investment that the banks do. Um, not quite as much money. But anyway, tell us more about Endeavour. Well, the regulated asset value is, is used as a kind of rough benchmark. It, um, it's the value that the regulator ascribes to the asset base and allows a return on. And it went for about 1.6 times, I think, at Endeavour, which is in line very broadly with the 1.5 to 1.6 that the two other New South Wales government assets, Ausgrid and Transgrid, have sold for. Now, I just want to look at the implications very briefly for, for New South Wales, because New South, even though it only sold over 50%, just a little over 50% of those, uh, Osgrid and Endeavour, it's actually able to move all 100% of the debt by the wonders of consolidation accounting. 100% of the debt goes off the New South Wales government balance sheet. So uh-huh. effective, effectively, they raised $16 billion, when you think about it that way, for selling half of Ausgrid, $7.5 billion for selling half of Endeavour, $10 billion for selling 100% of Transgrid and all its debt. So when you add all that up, that's uh, $26, $33 billion, and they still own Essential Energy. Uh, so I, I do think, uh, you know, the Queensland government is going to be thinking, gee, what could I do with $30 billion? And I bet they can think of something to do with it. I'm sure they could build a little infrastructure, pay for some schools and possibly protect their ratings as well. Um, I'm not too sure whether that's going to happen, though, anytime soon. So another quick little feature of this uh, was that the, they've uh, guaranteed the purchases to electricity prices, distribution prices in 2019 will be lower than in 2015. But how much lower uh, is yet to be seen and will it depart in pen, depend on what the Australian AER uh, case with the federal court, which is long running, still haven't seen a decision actually hands down. And that remains, I think, a key de- key driver of the value of these networks. Uh, it is true. I mean, it's Sur- surprising then they've actually agreed to buy it when they haven't got that um, key um, decision by the courts. There's a, a huge hunt. I mean, in the end, you're going to get uh, a return on your equity base on that RAB every year for 100 to 200 years, the way uh, the sale price is set up and the way they're regulated. Um, you know, the network's going to have a value for a long time. Superannuation fund liabilities uh, are long term and these kind of safe, steady return assets. I guess what it shows, Giles, that, you know, for all the enthusiasm we have for distributed energy, it's pretty clear that the people that are plunking down $30 billion kind of think that the electricity business uh, will do just as well in the future as it has in the past. Well, that's the interesting thing. I was just about to ask you that question too, because this has big implications for the um, consumer. Um, we do know that the, the network costs are half of the bill, and we also know from some of the own networks themselves that the cost of solar and storage are going to be about half the current half the current um, cost of the grid. So I'm not too sure where that where all that's ending up. Say five to ten years out, when you've got a lot of people finding they've got rooftop solar, they've got battery storage, and they probably add a little bit more of both, then they can probably beat the grid costs. And um, I guess that was the point, that was, that was one of the major points that came out of the CSIRO and Networks Australia. Uh, big look at you know the, the, the future grid, they recognise the risk that um, a lot of consumers actually leave the grid. They put it at 10%, but 
geez, it could even be more if, the, if, the, if they're right about the cost falls. Look, the grid is going to change, but uh, it's going to be impractical for most households to leave the grid entirely. In the end, you, you can have a battery, but I mean, anyone who's got a battery, if we should do a survey on this, Giles, will probably tell you there are times their batteries are empty. The, the battery, most people uh, in residential areas don't have enough battery storage to, you know, to, to exit the grid completely. Oh, absolutely. Look, my battery's empty right now as we speak. Um, that's because it wasn't sunny very much, so it didn't fill it up. And um, and there you go. But it's not a very big battery in the first place. I guess the issue is that, yes, I agree that most people won't go off the grid, nor should they. In fact, very few people should go off the grid because that would be inefficient. But I think enough of, enough people may be tempted to go off the grid because they will have the ability to do, to do so. And that will have implications. I think the, the networks and the networks were getting upset at the prospect of 10% of their consumers leaving the grid simply because of the implications of who's left to pay the charges and to d deliver the return of the assets that have just been bought. So when you look into that one and a half times value, enterprise value to regulated asset base, Giles, and we... I've looked at these numbers for years and I just want to caution the casual user about understanding what it represents. Part, part of it represents... Are you a, accusing me of being a casual user? No. <laughs> I, I'm just simply saying that it's a, it's a, it's a casual metric that's easy. To, it's like saying E equals MC squared. Albert Einstein knew what that meant uh, and I can say it, but I think there's a difference. Um, uh, I, I, all I'm trying to say is that here the... Part of what they're paying for is the value of the future growth, the future investment in the network. And that's the part I think that's more open to question because there's no doubt that the role of the network is going to change. The, the Networks Association itself recognises that. Uh, there was an article on your site, again, pointing to the uh, is Osnet um, trial of having a street island in itself for a while. There is going to be the pr network pricing is definitely going to change over the next 10 years. And the question is how the value of the networks will change. So there's more risk in this than, than, than might be apparent. I, I, I think that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was actually an interesting um, result on that Osnet trial, um, the fact that they did do that. And we're seeing the networks doing a range of trials um, all across the country. Uh, Ergon and Queensland have just um, extended one of their trials up there. We're seeing um, SAPN in South Australia and in WA doing many things. So it's going to be interesting, I think, also the, uh, the, the tension between the networks and the retailers when they come to the provision of these services and, and who gets to invest in them and who gets to run them. And, and how that's managed, and that's probably one for another day. Well, Giles, it, it is for another day. It's for every day. Let's put these retailers and networks back together and minimise the overall system cost. Look, I thoroughly agree with that. I think we're in, we're, we've been vertically integrated the wrong way. Um, it seems to me obvious that if you've got the retailers and the networks together and you have more competition in those things, then you've actually um, you've got more ability to find points of value and, and deliver savings and benefits to consumers. But... Um, so the Networks Association was talking about a disconnection tariff, uh, which is, you know, as you know, the big aluminium smelters have this, the networks and the generators have the right to disconnect them uh, for a while and, and, and they get paid a, um, a, a fee or a lower cost uh, for that. And we could extend that to households, but it's only going to be effective if, we can, if the generators and the networks both combine. At the moment, I think the thing about networks is it's not so much the actual value they have, it's the, it's the fact that they are the gatekeepers. They have much more power than the retailers and generators. Anyway. Mm, interesting. Look, let's move along to the next um, subject on the line. Uh, Renew Economy co-hosted this week a uh, innovation and startups conference. We got quite a good turnout, about 100 people. Everyone seemed to be getting along famously and found it quite valuable. 
The uh, interesting thing that came out for me was a chap talking about it, it, autonomous electric vehicles in Australia and the possibility of beginning manufacturing here and battery storage manufacturing. The batteries for this particular thing would be for those electric vehicles. That came at the same time as a new sort of um, outward-looking report from Tony Sieber from Stanford University about autonomous electric vehicles and, uh, and car ownership. And this was an interesting one. He predicts that within 10 years of getting the regulatory approval for the, um, the, the highest rating of autonomous, um, autonomous vehicles, which could happen in, say, 2020, 2021, 2022, within 10 years, that uh, public ownership or private ownership of vehicles will be pretty much gone. Um, it'll start in the big cities, it'll move out to the suburbs in the regional centres, probably get to rural areas last. But he basically sees a, um, a, a world where we're using cars, they're corporate fleets, they might be owned by corporates as, as sponsors as part of another service. These cars will not be sitting in the garage for 23 hours a day and doing um, not that many kilometres. They'll be used the whole time. They'll probably do five or six times as many miles um, as is done now. They'll be electric. They'll be automated. It'll be a completely different world. It's very hard to imagine, David. Well, it's easy to imagine. I love science fiction, Giles, and I've read, been reading it since I was a kid. And, and I love these kind of stories. But I also remember in the stock exchange in the 1980s, and early 1990s when we had three different companies uh, listed on the stock exchange making different engines, uh, uh, internal combustion engines, and guess what? They all went broke. Um, so I'm going to wait till this idea develops a little further. I, I, I don't know about you, but I like public transport, but I also like having my own car and knowing that if it's raining, I can just hop in it exactly when I want. Now, when the system develops to the point where I can expect uh, an autonomous vehicle or an Uber, otherwise known as an Uber to turn up uh, in, in, in five minutes and, uh, and will cost me less than owning a car, that's when I'm going to be ready to jump on board. But I'm probably not going to be the first volunteer. No, look, it's, it should be interesting how that goes. Uh, the predictions is that the um, the actual cost to users will be a fraction of the cost, although I do wonder when all these cars are owned by fleets whether the temptation uh, to use their power of the market control to, to push up prices. Um, that would be very interesting. But, um, look, fascinating fascinating idea. And the, the kids of today may never get to learn how to drive. And um, that's probably 150 hours of driver training that the parents can get back. Well, I don't think the kids of today are all that good drivers anyway. You, you shoved most of in front of a manual and you'll get a few raised eyebrows. Well, look, um, that, well, that's very true, actually. And um, and that's probably one of the reasons why we might, we might see that whole thing accelerated because if you do actually get autonomous vehicles and they do get on the road and they can resolve all those horrible decisions that a, that, that a computer um, has to make, in the end, they will probably be much safer. And it may be the insurers laying down the law saying, well, we'll insure these autonomous vehicles, but we're not going to insure any human drivers. And, and um, that might be the final thing that tilts it one way or the other. Uh, I won't say any more about it. I think um, cars today have got more and more autonomy, um, but it's probably a topic, Giles, that you know more about than I do. <laughs> yeah, that's OK. Look, um, let's have a peer into next week. Um, we had a story this week actually talking about the number of corporate PPAs in America. I think the combined, the uh, the five biggest IT companies have actually commissioned 3,000 megawatts of wind and solar as part of their uh, path towards 100% renewable energy. I'm thinking of Amazon and Google and Apple and, um, and the likes. We're starting to see the signs in Australia of an uptake in the corporate market, and I'm expecting some announcements in the next two weeks. We did see one last week or the week before of Monash University, which I think we talked about. Um, asking for a wind or solar farm to be built. 
uh, that was the first that we've seen in Australia, and um, I'm rather expecting it's not going to be the last. No, and it's not just the um, what I might call the the, the the good guys image companies like your Googles and Amazons and Apples, but we're also seeing your Walmarts and uh, quite a number of companies, IKEAs, that are all uh, big on renewable energy and corporates, and they see it's money-making, they see it's a, a good for their corporate image. In the end, being green is a vote winner. I mean, we all know if it comes to the environment and you say you will support the environment, that's like a motherhood statement. It's just a question of how much you're prepared to pay for that or whether you can make money out of it. The second thing I want to point out, just coming back on electric cars, what is interesting and where Australia may have uh, some advantage is in lithium. And I think it's uh, time probably to have another look at the lithium market going forward and, and see how much the battery market is going to grow in, in total. No, that's a that, that, that's a really good idea. Look, one final thing I want to to touch on upon is the federal budget. And look, the federal budget didn't tell us much about clean energy or climate at all, apart from confirming that they want to defund the Climate Change Authority. But that's been the coalition policy for some time now, and more's the pity. One interesting thing I just wanted to test your um, idea about, and uh, hadn't flagged it before, but this idea now that they're sort of hitting the banks with this um, this tariff or this special fee that uh, we mentioned at the start of the. Uh, at the start of the bulletin, plus some of their other issues. This is not a small government anymore. This is a government that's prepared to intervene. Might this give us an opportunity to actually develop an Obama-style climate and clean energy policy or sort of government intervention, energy efficiency, pushing towards wind and solar? We've got energy efficiency we know is actually really cost-effective. We've got wind and solar falling uh, quite dramatically. Maybe having a series of reverse auctions, as some people have suggested, even the CEFC, maybe there's a way of getting around this without actually having a carbon price, which seems to be verboten. I think we need both, Giles. I think we need to incentivise renewable supply, and I think we need not a carbon price. That's uh, because a carbon price is wishy-washy. That's the main fault with emissions intensity. It depends on the future baseline, the future price, when what we want for investment is certainty. And so uh, let's uh, not beat about the bush. Let's bring back the carbon tax. Bring, bring back the tax. Let's look. The, the, the petrol tax costs the average household in Australia at least $600 a year. And if you've got two or three cars, it can cost well over. The, the petrol tax was always going to cost more than, than the, the, the prior carbon tax. And, and I don't see why we shouldn't have a carbon tax. It's a good revenue raiser um, and it might help the federal government buy, buy snowy if that's what they're so set on. And, and we should point out that wholesale price, wholesale electricity prices is twice as high now as they were under the uh, the carbon price. So, yes, let's bring back the tax. It, look, it has a certain ring to it, um, David. Do you think it's going to get picked up by any of the parties? Bring back the tax? Bring back the tax? I think there's still a lot of uh, people on both sides licking, licking their wounds out of that. But you know what? Uh, that's what we stand for, Giles. We stand for a good policy here. I, uh, we don't have to go out and get voted in. We can just say what's correct. And a carbon tax and an incentive for renewables and some incentives for distributed generation, That's and some incentives for some better electric vehicle policy. That's what we want. That's the sort of party we'd be voting for. Good on you, David. Well, let's see what such a party actually emerges, and um, that won't be next week, but I'm sure we'll have much to talk about. David, thanks again once again, and um, thanks for listening. Thanks.